to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Hello. Good evening. How are you guys? Good. I am Daniel Grothy, and I work here at New Life Church at the Mill, primarily on Friday nights, and uh, as one of the associate pastors there, and I'm honored to be here with you guys. And um, uh, my wife is in the back corner with our needy son, Wilson. Lisa Grothy, uh, back there waving. Hi, Wilson James. Hi, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, and we have a, uh, he's 14 months, and we have a daughter, Lillian, who's coming up on three and a half, and so we are playing hard and sleeping infrequently and uh, having a blast with our children. Um, we are talking through the book of 1 Peter here, and this is the second week in that series, and so I'm going to be talking tonight out of 1 Peter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to 1 Peter 2, and uh, We'll get started in there. Real quick, though, uh, I see some mill people here. We just got back from Crooked Creek Ranch in Fraser, Colorado. Anyone, anyone go this weekend? Okay, yes. Anyone not get any sleep this weekend? Okay, yes, I see that hand. Um, we took about 525 college students to the mountains this weekend to worship God and to praise and to, to play hard and to run around outside, and, and it was a really great time. This is our 10th fall retreat uh, in a row, and so uh, having a blast with the mill, and uh, had a really good time this weekend, and Glenn spoke this morning out there, so um, anyway, yes, First Peter chapter 2, we're jumping in here tonight, and um, the title of my talk is God's Loved Ones, and I want to kind of set it up here, um, last week Glenn opened up with chapter 1, and tonight we're in chapter 2, and, and Peter here is talking to the people of God scattered abroad. It's a pretty general letter. It's not to just one specific place. And he's talking primarily to Gentiles. And Peter here is encouraging them in their trials, encouraging them to live lives of genuine faith in pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so he opens up chapter 2, and it's a pretty familiar passage in uh, verses 9 through 10. And he says to them, but you are a chosen people. Notice plural, people. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, again plural. He calls them a holy nation. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, you once were not a people, but now you are a people. You once were without mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter's encouraging these people who are in hardship, and he's saying to them, look, you used to be on the outside. You were totally left alone. You didn't have a chance in this world. You didn't have mercy. You weren't a nation of people. But now, God has made you in Christ Jesus, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a people that belong to God. And he's founding them. He, he's... he's rooting them and anchoring them in their identity in Christ Jesus, that they're in the family of God, 
They once were lost. They once were gone. They once were not even thought of as a people. But now they are the people of God. So he opens up with that in chapter 2, and it kind of jerks the slack out of these people. And they're forced to either believe we're a people or we're not. Either God's true or he's not. Either God has grafted us in or he hasn't. And so Peter says he has, and believe it and live like it. He says, you are the new people of God. You are the church. You are the bride of Christ. You are my extension, in the, an extension of me in the world. But then he moves on here in a few verses, and this is where we're kind of anchoring ourselves tonight. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and I want to read that together. I think it's going to be up on the screen. But he says to them, after telling them that they're the people of God, he opens up by calling them slaves. He's saying, hey, you slaves. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? You deserve it, he's saying, if, if you've done wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And then he goes on to say, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he opens up verses 9 and 10 saying, you are a people, you're chosen, you're God's holy, holy people, a generation that God has called out and made his own. You now have mercy and you've now been brought into the family. Encouraging. And we move on to verse 18, and he calls them slaves. But wait, aren't these the people of God? Aren't they supposed to be on top, right? They're the people of God. They're chosen, so they should rule. They should be in charge. They should be in the driver's seat. But Peter knows what's going on in their lives, and he knows the culture in which they're living. He knows their situation. That many of them have been subjected to slavery, to hardship, to beatings. They're certainly the bottom rung of the social class in this culture. And he knows how they're living. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's lost on Peter uh, what's going on here and why he chose to open up chapter 2 with who they are in God's family. And then he moves on to the reality of their situation. Hey, you slaves, I know that a lot of you have masters that are mean to you that mistreat you, that don't take care of you, that step all over you. And he tells them how they're to respond to this. It's not very encouraging to think about being called slaves after being established as the people of God, but that's their reality. A few verses after him, he calls them slaves, he paints this picture of Jesus Christ being pummeled. 
But wait, this is our king. Our king's getting crushed. We're slaves, and at least our king should be making a charge, getting some momentum going for us, establishing his kingdom so that we can join him up and, and reign with him and, and be the, the masters of, of our slaves. But that's not the picture that Peter's painting. He's recalling what Isaiah 53 talks about, this image of Jesus Christ suffering and dying and bearing our sins in his body. Not many of us want to follow a defeated leader. We don't want to follow someone who's getting crushed. Not many of us are brave enough to watch the Broncos when they're down 59 to 14. We turn the TV off. Sorry, guys. I just had to. Current events, right? <laughs> the point is, not, if we know our politician that we voted for is down 90 to 10, we don't stay up late through the night to watch him, to watch all the polls come in. We know he just got crushed. We turn the television off and we go to bed. We aren't a people that like to follow uh, seeming losers, right? We don't like to follow someone who's not in charge, who's not on the cutting edge, who's not leading. That's kind of discouraging to us. And yet Peter says, hey, slaves, here's how you need to act in your situation. And then he paints a picture of their king, Jesus, who was crushed. I wonder how these people felt when they got this letter from him. We're a culture that is so absolutely competitive. We, have, we, have, we make excuses to find reasons to win. Okay, it's not enough to watch a football game. We have to have a fantasy league where we can beat other people and hope that our team wins. And we just, we just like to win, don't we? We like to be in first place. And part of that is good. Part of that is right. I'm not saying that that's inherently wrong. But I think these people were in a pretty tough situation. And hearing from Peter may not have been initially super encouraging. Here at this point in Scripture, where Peter's talking to them, is where we must acquire one of the most important images of Jesus the Messiah. One of the most important images in all of Scripture. We have to catch this at this point in this passage in 1 Peter 2. And it goes back to Isaiah. And it's Isaiah's image of the suffering servant. Four times in Isaiah's book, he talks about the suffering servant. Now, Isaiah was writing in about 740 B.C., so 740 years before Christ. And yet Isaiah got this picture. He got this foreshadowing, this image of the one that was to come, the Messiah. And the way that he describes him four times is the suffering servant. Let me read you this passage out of Isaiah 42. And this is God talking, and he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. 
I love that. In his law, the islands will put their hope. You can see the islands, the distant islands leaning in, groaning. When will there be justice? When will there be righteousness? When will this earth be made right? In his law, the islands will put their hope. Isaiah talks about this suffering servant who in the streets doesn't go out and cry out and raise his voice and make himself known and try to fight for his rights. He talks about one who's quiet, who's humble, who's righteous, who keeps his mouth shut even in the face of unjust suffering. Isaiah's suffering servant. I love in this passage it opens up with the one who God will uphold and choose and delight in. Who is the one that God will uphold and choose and delight in and give his spirit to? Isaiah says that it's the servant. Isaiah tells us in Scripture that the one that God delights in and upholds and takes care of and pours his love out on is the servant. And here Jesus, our king, is described as Not only a servant, but a suffering servant. We need to get that image. We have to grab a hold of that before we go on. That Jesus Christ, God made flesh, coming down and dwelling among us, took on the role of a servant and subjected himself, opened himself up to suffering when he created everything we're looking at. He's been in existence before before time began. He is. He was and he is to come. This is our king. And Isaiah says that he's the servant. For us, his servants, for servants of God, we may not have all the money in the world, but we have his spirit. We may not be well-known or recognized or receive any status from our culture, but we have his spirit. We may not always be in perfect health, but we have his spirit. We may be lied about and talked bad about and called out wrongly, but we have his spirit. Who is it the one that God upholds and takes care of? It's his servants. And we, his servants, though it may not be perfect, certainly wasn't for the people that Peter was writing to, these slaves who were being taken advantage of right and left. But he's saying, look, you have the spirit of God. Jesus is your king. He's going to take care of you. You're going to be fine. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and you belong to God. We have these images of a conquering king. When we think of Jesus, we think of the conquering king. And he certainly is the conquering king. But I'd like to suggest that Jesus conquers by his suffering and by his serving. That's how Jesus conquered. By coming to be be made as a servant and to suffer and to die and to bear our sins in his own body. And as he was raised from the dead, he was glorified. Jesus' serving and suffering was the precursor to his conquering. In Jesus' case, no conquering without the serving and the suffering. He paid it forward. He... He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, the conquering, the righteousness bringing. He endured the cross, Scripture says, despising its shame. 
But then it goes on to say, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. As a result of his suffering and shame, and his resur- then came his resurrection, and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father as the conquering king. But it started with his serving, with his being willing to serve, and his opening himself up to suffering, even unjustly. It's almost a willed weakness that Jesus, that Jesus has this willed weakness. He certainly was not weak. He, scripture says that he, when he was hanging on the cross, could he not have called down legions of angels to deliver him from that? Jesus, Jesus gave himself up. He wasn't so much killed as he offered himself It's a willed weakness that turns into a glorious strength. That the Holy Spirit, if we will be willing to be weak, the the Holy Spirit can come into that and turn it around and bring beauty and glory out of the ashes. That He will bring life out of death. And so I want us to acquire this, or at least be open to this idea of a willed weakness. Submitting ourselves to the one who judges justly knowing that he's going to settle things, that he's going to make things right. Wherever the spirit of the Messiah is, somebody gets served. Wherever the spirit of Messiah is, someone is going to get served. We see this all throughout Scripture. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. Wherever God is at work by his spirit, people are going to be served. We see this in Acts 1.8, at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' resurrection. And it says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So right there, Luke is equating the pouring out of the Spirit to our call to be his witnesses. Not pouring out of the Spirit for pouring out of the Spirit's sake, but as you receive the Spirit, you will receive power from on high to go and to bless the nations to go and to take care of people, to go and to show God's love. You're empowered so that you can serve. We see this in Luke. This is Jesus himself talking in the temple. He takes the scroll and he's reading Isaiah 61, the prophet who foretold him 740 years before. And he takes the scroll and he stands up and he reads it. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord God is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The Spirit didn't come on Jesus so that Jesus could be a rock star. The Spirit came upon Jesus so that Jesus could lay his life down and serve and to bless people and to preach good news to the poor and to set free the captives and to open up the blind eyes and to take care of his people. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, people have to get served. All the way back to Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham. From the very beginning, God says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. He didn't say, Abraham, you know, you're my favorite. And so I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you can rub it in and say that God loves me the most. He said, Abraham, I'm calling you and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to spread you out all over the earth. Look up at those stars. Your kids are going to outnumber those stars. Here's why. 
so that you will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Wherever the Spirit of God is, people will get served. This is foundational in our faith. This is from the very beginning. This is not just a New Testament idea. This is how God set things up in his kingdom. Where he's at work in his people, people's lives are going to be made better. The Spirit is not poured out primarily so that our lives get better. The Spirit is poured out so that we can make other people's lives better. Our lives get better in the process, no doubt about it. We don't have to hate life and just go be a blessing. Daniel, you're just gonna, it's going to stink for you, and you're going you're gonna to hate it, and you're not going to have any food, and you're not going to have a place to sleep, but go be a blessing and like it. That's not how God made it. Our lives certainly get better, certainly become blessed in the process. We have the peace of God, the joy unspeakable, full of glory, overflowing in our lives as the Spirit of God comes upon us. But it's not just so that we have a better life. It's so that we go make life better for people who need it, for the nations of the earth. We are Abraham's seed. We are his children. We've been in this family. And our calling all the way back to the beginning is to go be a blessing. We are those children that outnumber the stars in the sky. And it's our job. It's our calling. It's our, it's our thing. It's, this is our This is our family story. The family of God blesses people. God's children go and pull people in and make their lives better for his glory. I want to clear something up here as we're we're kind of talking about suffering in this passage and we're going to get into it a little more. But from the outset, I want to clarify two kinds of suffering. When When Peter's talking here, he says that your life, there's going to be times when you suffer, when you struggle, when you go through trials. People will take advantage of you. In fact, some of your masters are doing that right now. These two kinds of suffering that I want to make a distinction between is, number one, the suffering that comes from the fallenness of the world. The suffering that is inherent in the sinful world that we live in. Because of the fall, bad stuff happens. There's sickness, there's poverty, there's people that take advantage of other people. There's suffering that goes on in this world that is inherent in the fall. And it's tragic and it's terrible and it's brutal. But for the people of God, for believers in Jesus Christ, there is a different kind of suffering that comes because of the gospel. By virtue of the fact that we lay our lives down and submit our lives to Christ Jesus, there is suffering that comes to us that is different from the suffering that is a part of the fallenness of the world. There's suffering for the sake of the gospel, just because we identify ourselves as children of God. There's suffering. So I want to say from the outset, Peter here is talking about the suffering that comes from being signed up, being family members in God's family. Not the fallenness in the world suffering. Suffering for being God's people and for being faithful to him and being obedient to him and not backing down. That kind of suffering is what he's talking about. We, in this 21st century America, 
this 21st century American culture might be tempted to think that this second brand of suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel, doesn't really happen to us. In fact, I've had people tell me this, like, yeah, I understand what Peter's saying, but that doesn't happen here. We don't suffer for the gospel. And I would say that they're wrong. Now, it may not be physical violence or, or getting hung in the city streets or, or crucified. That, that's not commonplace in our world, thank God. But it doesn't mean that we don't suffer for the sake of the gospel. And, um, for instance, we live in an idolatrous society. Idols, 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 and more idols. And there is suffering that we, God's people, go through to, at times for not going there, for not being idol worshipers. We get penalized sometimes because we're not willing to gain the whole world and lose our souls. Your work might want you to work 80, 90 hours a week and not spend any time with your family. And w- look, we're going to take care of you and we're going to pay you and you're gonna, your family's going to have everything you need and you're going to be in the top 1% of society with your material goods, but it's going to require your family. When we as God's people resist that and stand against that and say, no, I'm not willing to do that, sometimes we get the short end of the stick. Sometimes we do suffer. And, I, and I'm not trying to make us be on the, the lookout for suffering. I'm not trying to make us paranoid about suffering. But what I'm saying is that suffering is not uh, is not not going on for us in 21st century America. It just looks different. But also to those who would say that suffering doesn't happen to us, I would say even on a more elementary level, on a, on a more foundational level, it does happen to us because our brothers and sisters all over the world are going through it. Just because it doesn't happen to us right here in Colorado Springs doesn't mean that it's not happening to our family members. How many of you have ever had a family member get sick with an illness? I mean, really sick. Did you feel that? There's no way you would have said, oh, this isn't, I'm not going through this. It's, It's my sister. It doesn't affect me. No, it absolutely affects us when one of our family members is sick or hurting or broken or has been taken advantage of. We feel it. And it's no different in the family of God. When our, when our brothers and sisters all over the world are suffering because of dirty water or because of slave, uh, slavery or sex trade, or, it absolutely does affect us because we're in the same family. We're brothers and sisters. And so we ought to be about the work of undoing that. We, we ought to be about the, wor- the work of making sure that that happens less and less because these are our brothers and sisters. We can't just go... La, 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 because it's not happening to us right here. It's happening to our brothers and sisters. And it is suffering. And we are family members. And so we live our lives to minimize that, to see that that stops. How do people, how do the people of God endure the suffering? This is the question that I want to address tonight. How do we, if Peter says, look, you're suffering You're going to go through it. It's a part of your life in Christ. How do we as the people of God get through it? How do we endure this suffering? God's people endure suffering by fixating on God's love. 
just fixating, attaching, being enamored with God's love, focusing on God's love. God's people endure suffering by fixating on his love. Knowing our status that Peter anchored us in, in 2, 9, and 10, he says, look, you are God's people. You have been chosen. You have been called. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You didn't have mercy, but now you have it. You are God's people. This understanding, this identity as as being rooted in God's love helps us as his people endure suffering when we're going through it. We fixate on his love for us. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, God has said, this is God speaking, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the very first memory verse that our daughter Lillian memorized. She was just almost two. And the reason why I picked it is because it's so short. And she could get it. Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. Because the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What could man do to me? So Lillian would walk around the house and she'd say, Lillian, Hey, what, you remember Hebrews 13, 6? Yeah, Daddy. Well, what does it say? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then I'd say, what can man do to me? What can, what can man do to you, Lillian? Nothing. Why, Lillian? Because the Lord is my helper. And she, this just got in her. She's three and a half now. And she, 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 she has this understanding. It's going to grow. It's going to take a lifetime. But she knows that the Lord is her helper, so she doesn't have to be afraid because man cannot do anything to her. Ultimately, because the Lord is her helper, she is going to be fine. And this is what Peter is saying to them. Look, God has chosen you. He's picked you. He's crazy about you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. You are his and he is yours. Fixate on the love of God in the midst of your suffering, and you will make it. You will endure. It's not always going to be easy, but you will endure. The people of God endure suffering by fixating on the love of God. Secondly, God's people endure suffering by fixating on Jesus' example. The example of Jesus. Peter is saying right here in 1 Peter 2, look at your Savior. Watch him in his death. Watch him in his suffering. See how he does it, and you do that. He says in 1 Peter 2.21, we just read it earlier, to this you were called. Suffering is a part of our calling. It is a part of our lives in Christ. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you, example, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him to, to himself to him who judges justly. The people of God endure suffering by fixating on Jesus' example. How did he do it when he went through it? Paul in Philippians chapter 3, this is a familiar passage to many of you, and he says, In verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And here it is. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Have you guys ever seen the Build-A-Bear store in the mall? Have you ever heard of the Build-A-Bear thing? I never, I never understood how that was a business. Uh, Build-A-Bear. Come and build a bear. Anyway, they're around and you've seen them. I think we, as the people of God, sometimes like to have a build-a-faith kind of a situation. Build-a-faith. To know Him in the, the power of His resurrection. Woo! But we don't get to build a faith. We receive a faith. And Paul says that the faith that we have received, we enter into the power of his resurrection and we also enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. And we become like him in his death and so as to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We know him in the power of his resurrection and we can be sustained in him by the fellowship of his sufferings. He will sustain us as we suffer. We, we get through suffering as the people of God by fixating on Jesus' example. So what was Jesus like in the process of his dying? If he says become like him in his death, we have to understand what Jesus was like in his death. And right here it says that Jesus was sinless, he was humble, he was gentle, he wasn't threatening, he was quiet, he wasn't out pressing for coverage in the local newspapers, he wasn't out hiring the best attorney to, to file a lawsuit for libel and defamation. Jesus wasn't out fighting for his rights. He submitted himself as a servant and gave his life so that we might have it, so that we might have life. Becoming like Jesus in his death, we watch him and we learn how to endure suffering and we come out on the other, uh, other side of it purified and holy and more like him. Jesus was not the archetypal character in the movie who's getting wrongfully uh, taken advantage of, who, as the bad guy's running away, yells out, you scoundrel, cursed be your mother and your father and the day you were born. You know the movies where, the, where someone's getting taken advantage of and they spitefully scream at them, you'll pay for this. That was not our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the movies. That's the world. Jesus is different. Jesus is humble. He didn't raise his voice in the streets. He didn't fight for his rights. He laid down his life willingly. And so too do we. Is it possible that the Lord could bless others through our sufferings? Is it possible that we can become what Henry Nouwen called wounded healers? That in the midst of our wound, in the midst of our hurt, somehow the Holy Spirit takes it and uses it for His glory and blesses others and heals others and takes care of others. But we have to be willing to submit to it. We can fight this. We can try to avoid it at all costs. We can try 
to act like it shouldn't happen to us, and we can minimize suffering, and we can, we can, we can check out if we want. It is possible to walk away from the faith because we aren't willing to go through this. But if we will stay steady and stay faithful and let Jesus do his work in the midst of our suffering, other people will be blessed and we will be brought out holy and pure and made into the image of Christ Jesus and he will settle all accounts. He will take care of us, his people. Jesus was crowned with thorns and now he's crowned with glory. Crowned with thorns first. Crowned with glory for eternity. I think sometimes we, we have a life that looks like that. We're crowned with hardship at times. And I guarantee you, by the word of God, he will turn it into glory. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12. And it leads to my next point. God's people endure suffering by trusting in the Holy Spirit's power. God's people endure suffering by trusting in the Holy Spirit's power. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says this, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that were given to him. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions even, in difficulties. For when I am weak... Then am I strong, Paul says. God's people endure suffering by trusting in the Holy Spirit's power. It's interesting that Paul here was talking about thorns. Jesus, thorns in his brow. And Paul said there was a thorn and somehow God turned it into glory. We, the people of God, Sadly, we, we hate it. Listen, I'm not a glutton for punishment. I don't think persecution is awesome. I don't think it's cool. I don't glory in it. I don't think it's the greatest thing ever. I certainly don't get down on my knees in the morning and say, God, would you please per- have persecution come on me today so that I might bring you glory? That's not what Scripture's talking about. We, we don't ask for it. We aren't looking for it. We aren't gluttons for punishment. But when it comes, we know what to do with it because we've watched Jesus. When it comes, we don't take it as a sign of God's hatred of us. We, we take it as we're the loved ones of God. We've been called into his family and we get to fellowship with him even in his sufferings and we will know the power of his re- resurrection on the back end of this. So please don't hear me say that I love persecution and it's awesome and we, the people of God, I hate it as much as the next guy, but we know what to do with it. We can endure it because the Holy Spirit's power is so strong and we're going to be kept in the midst of it and he will walk us through. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear 
no evil because he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares the table before us even in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our heads with oil and our cups overflow and surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is our story as the people of God. We respond to suffering not as the forsaken of God, but as the loved ones of God. Ultimately, we have to believe that he loves us or we will check out. We will quit. We'll be disheartened. We'll be discouraged. We'll think that God is mean and distant and impersonal and he's trying to crush us. We respond to suffering not as if we're being taken advantage of by God, but as if God is loving us and he'll walk us through it. We are not mercenaries that have to go out and fight for our rights. We don't have to protect our self-interests. We entrust ourselves, as Peter says, to the one who judges justly. And in the end, he will settle all accounts. And he will set things right. And he will vindicate his people. And he will watch over his people. And he will protect his people. And he will call his people to be with him for eternity. And we will rejoice with him. Though weeping may last for a night, God's joy will come in the morning for his people. Can we read Psalm 34 together? We read it earlier, but I'd like us, it's going to come up on the screen. Can we just read this together as God's people and make this proclamation by faith that we are his and he's going to watch out over us. He's going to take care of us. Here we go. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Lord, we are your people, called by your name, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people that belong to you, that we may declare the praises of you, the one who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We once did not have mercy, but now you have poured your mercy out on us. And so we say we love you and we thank you. We look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, as the example for how to walk through suffering. And we know, Holy Spirit, that you are powerful and you're strong and you will turn our weakness into your strength and you will be glorified through it. And Lord, we say that we trust in your love. We will not let the enemy lie to us and say that you are not on our side. We will not let the enemy lie to us and say that men and women can take advantage of us and ruin our lives and take us away from you. We say, Hebrews 13, 6, you are our helper and we will not fear for what can man do to us. Lord, we bless you tonight and we praise you. We pray that you would teach us to persevere, to endure, to be made righteous, Lord, through, through all the, the circumstances of our lives. And we give you glory and we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.